Good morning. If you find your seats, we'll get started. If you would, turn to Philippians chapter 1. We'll be starting in verse 3. And that's Philippians chapter 1, verse 3. And if you would, stand for the reading of God's word this morning. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affections of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Christ Jesus to the glory and praise of God. Let's pray. Dear Lord, our our Father, Lord, in heaven, we, we pray that, Lord. We pray that you would be glorified. We pray that you would be praised, not just here at Country Oaks, Lord, but throughout the world. God, I thank you, Lord, for this letter that was written, inspired by Paul, to the church at Philippi, God. What an amazing, encouraging, joy-filled letter, Lord, in a time of suffering and hardship. Lord, I pray as we slowly start this new series and slowly walk through uh, uh, this book verse by verse by verse, Lord, that you would enrich in our walk with you, Lord, that you would give us a joy that, that doesn't make sense, Lord, that those that are outside of these four buildings, would, or four walls, Lord, would uh, see us, Lord, and see something different. God, I pray that we would just be more like your son, Lord. That we would be like Paul, who is joy-filled in suffering. God, I thank you for this letter, and I pray that we would grow. In your son's name, amen. You may be seated. We're starting a, a new sermon series uh, this morning. We're going to be walking verse by verse through the book of Philippians. Now, Here's my guess. It's just a guess, but um, I don't think we're going to be in the book of Philippians as long as we were in the book of Exodus. There are 40 chapters in uh, the book of Exodus. There's four in Philippians. So it won't take us as long to go verse by verse through uh, the book of Philippians, but we'll be moving at a much slower rate because there's just so much rich content in this book. In fact, the book of Philippians, from my experience, is uh, most people's favorite book in Scripture. If you ask what's your favorite book um, in, in all of Scripture, uh, I believe the majority of the time you're going to hear the book of Philippians. Uh, it's an epistle. It's an epistle full of joy and encouragement, and that's probably why it's people's favorite uh, book in Scripture. Philippians was written by Paul 
to a church that really he absolutely loved. In fact, you can just hear Paul's love with what I just read earlier. Just a deep, profound love and affection for this church in the first few verses in the first chapter. So much so that many theologians believe that the church at Philippi was just Paul's favorite church. Out of all the churches that he planted and all the churches that he interacted with, he loved this church. Today, I want to start this series really by getting to know the church itself. Most of us know Paul, the story of Paul, and we will learn a lot about Paul in the epistle to the Philippian church. But I want to start this morning with talking about the, the church itself. As a Christian, I have learned over the years that one of the best ways of getting to know a fellow Christian is just by asking them their testimony. In fact, when we have uh, fellow Christians over at our house, that's one of the questions we want to ask is uh, just how they uh, became Christians. And I like how Mike Owens actually asked this. He, he says this, he'll ask, uh, share with me how God intervened in your life. Well, I was thinking about that, and the church at Philippi really has a testimony in the Philippian church. A story of how God intervened in the lives of its founding members, how the church was planted, a, a story. Um, and, and just like a person, I think one of the best ways of getting to know a church, especially a young church, and at this point it would have been a young church, is by hearing its testimony. Thankfully, uh, the Philippian church's testimony has been written down for us, a, a true story, a historical story, inspired by God, and the story is found in Acts chapter 16. So if you would, turn with me to Acts chapter 16. We're starting sermon series of the book of Philippians. That means we'll be in Acts all day today. I really don't have points this morning. Usually I have three, two, four points. I, I don't have points this morning. I just kind of want to walk through the story of how God intervened in the city of Philippi, the, the testimony of the Philippian church, how, how this church got started, its foundation. Let me give you the context as you're turning there to Acts 15, or 16, because there's 15, church, or 15 uh, chapters that lead up to chapter 16. This is Paul's second missionary journey that we're going to start off here. At this point in Acts, the gospel has spread throughout the surrounding areas of Israel and Jerusalem in Gentile cities, meaning non-Jewish cities. And because of the gospel going out to the Gentiles in Acts 15, the chapter just before uh, the chapter we're going to be in, in, Ap in Acts 15 is, is what's called the Jerusalem Council where the apostles and the elders of the Jewish church in Jerusalem got together, and they concluded that Gentile believers, these churches that are getting planted in Gentile areas, did not have to be circumcised or adopt Jewish customs to be saved. Therefore, in Acts 16, Paul is going to take that news from the Jerusalem council to the surrounding Gentile churches, and, and that's where we're at in verse 4. If you would, look at verse 4. It says this, as they went on their way. Now let me just stop there and say the they here is Paul, Timothy, and Silas. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decision that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and they increased in number daily. From here, after Paul went through the, the churches and 
delivered this news, Paul really starts his second missionary journey uh, where his goal is to plant churches, continue to plant churches in Asia Minor. So if you look at verse 6, it says this, And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, uh, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. Now that's a really interesting verse, verse 6. Paul's plan was to, to go throughout Asia, Asia Minor, and, and share the gospel and plant more churches, but the Spirit, it's the Holy Spirit, God, wouldn't let him. In fact, the Spirit for, forbid him to speak the word in Asia. Now, it's not exactly clear how the Spirit stopped him, but what is abundantly clear in these verses is that God had different plans than these men. Look at verse 7. And when they had come to Mycenae, they attempted to go to Bithynia. Now, Bithynia is a, a very important city in this time. Uh, it was in Asia Minor, up north. It was north of where Paul was at. It was a port city uh, on the Black Sea, a very populated and seemingly a strategic city for the gospel, for a church to be planted as the gospel could spread from that port city throughout Asia. Right? It made sense, but... Look at the second part of verse 7. But the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. Once again, God had different plans for Paul. In verse 6, he didn't let Paul preach in South Asia Minor. Now he's not letting him go north. And he came from the east, so where is the only place left to go? West. Verse, verse 8. So passing by Mycenae, they went down to Torres. Now, Torres is the, the most western part of Asia Minor. It was a, a port city on the uh, Aegean uh, Sea. Look at verse 9, it says this, And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Now, these two verses are more important than I think most people realize when they're reading through the book of Acts. Let me just make a couple observations that I think— uh, are important for us to, to know. First, this is the first we statement that we see in the book of Acts, right? Look at verse 10. It says this, immediately we, we sought to go on into Macedonia, meaning Luke. Luke is the author of the, the book of Acts, and at this point he has joined Paul and the other men. It's somewhere in here, uh, the, the statement becomes we. So I just want you to think about that, because this is really an all-star team. You have Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Luke all together going out to plant a church. I mean, Timothy, or uh, uh, Paul and Luke, his, they're the authors that written the, the majority of the New Testament. Second thing I want to point out is that these men are going to help the people in Macedonia by preaching the gospel. Now, don't miss that. It's really, it's not a small thing. Look at verse 9 again. It says this. 
And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, what's he saying? Come over to Macedonia and help us. Help us. I, I looked up the Greek because I just wanted to make sure that word meant help, and, and it does. That's a good translation, help. It, it means uh, to come to our aid or uh, come help us. Macedonia, the, the, this area, needed help. And I want you to think about this because, because how does Paul, Timothy, and Luke plan to help? Are they planning to bring food? Healing? Some kind of health care? Political philosophies? Are they going to bring that to Macedonia? The teaching on morality? This was a pagan area. No, look what it says in verse 10. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding, this is their conclusion of the vision, that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. The greatest need for Macedonia wasn't food, wasn't health care or politics. What Macedonia needed was the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. Macedonia needed help, and the answer was the gospel, nothing else. That, that's just so important. Listen to what Paul says, his heart in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 1. He says this, and I, this is Paul, and I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I de de uh, decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. It's the gospel. That is the greatest help Paul could have offered. The good news of Jesus Christ. And this brings me to a, a third observation of these two verses I want to point out. Macedonia was, was west across the Aegean Sea. It was on the, the mainland of Greece, which is Europe not Asia. A whole new continent. Churches have been planted in Asia Minor. This is Europe. At this point, it doesn't seem like Paul had plans to go to Europe. He, he may have, I, I don't know, but it seemed like in his second missionary journey, he was content in staying in Asia Minor, but God had different plans. God told Paul to take the gospel west. And this is a big deal. Look at verse 11. It says this. So setting sail from Torres, that's Asia Minor, we made a direct voyage to Sam Samothrace and, and the following day to Neapolis and from there to Philippi. Now listen to this. Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days. Now, Philippi is a leading city in Macedonia, but, but more importantly, it was the first European city that Paul ever planted a church in. And before we move on, I just want you to let that settle in for a second. If you know Western history at all, the spread of Christianity is just so important. You, you really can't understand Western history without understanding church history. In fact, I, I didn't have any idea of Western history just didn't make sense to me until I took a church history class and it was like the backbone of Western civilization. 
God's call on Paul to go west was the start of what shaped Western civilization for the next 2,000 years. Listen, I want you to understand this. The blessings we have today in the West, the blessings we have today in the West, just, just think of the earthly blessings. Our material wealth. We are richer than 99.9% of the people that ever lived on the face of the earth. Running water, food, refrigeration, air conditioning, retirement, our technological and scientific advancements in the West, modern medicine, our freedoms, our education, even America itself was all birthed out of a biblical worldview. And that biblical worldview was adopted by the West because the gospel moved westward. Let me just say this before we move on. And it's simply this. Don't underestimate the power of the gospel. Don't underestimate the power of the gospel. Paul says in Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Before the gospel moved westward, during Paul's time, everything west of Asia Minor was thoroughly pagan and barbaric. Cultures you would, would never want to live in. And you know what? That's our ancestors. Our heritage. And the gospel changed everything. Changed everything. Think about this. The earthly blessings you're experiencing today are directly connected to the gospel moving westward, and that's just earthly blessings. I haven't mentioned the, the spiritual blessings. Do you know we have more than a hundred different English translations of the Bible? More than a hundred different English translations. Let me ask a question, and this time I really do want you to raise your hand. How many of you grew up in the church? Raise your hand. Look around. Put your hand down. Raise your hand again. How many of you heard the gospel as a child or a youth? Put your hand down. How many of your kids or grandkids have heard the gospel message? You know how privileged you are? You know, that word privilege gets thrown around a lot nowadays with the social justice movement. White privilege, male privilege. How about this? If you grew up in America, if you grew up in the West, you have gospel privilege. That's a responsibility. You grew up with the privilege of hearing about Jesus Christ. And that's all because the gospel went west. Again, don't underestimate the power of the gospel. Just a side note, and I'm just going to beat this drum. You know what's going to change America? Change our culture? It's not politics. The gospel. Politics are only a band-aid. And don't get me wrong, politics are important, but it's a band-aid. We have a gaping wound in our culture. 
as soon as the church loses focus of the gospel by focusing on politics, we lose focus on the only thing that can truly change a culture. The church needs to be more like Paul, not less. Preaching nothing but Christ crucified and and trusting that the gospel, nothing else, is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Remember, Paul got a vision to go to Macedonia to help a culture, a city, a continent that needed help. And he went straight to Philippi and preached the gospel. Look at verse 12. From there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony, we remained in this city some days. Philippi was a very important city, a leading city of the district of Macedonia. It was named after Philippi of Macedonia, who was actually the father of Alexandria the Great. In fact, some people think, this may be true, it may not, some people think that the man in Paul's vision was Philip. Which, again, it could be true, maybe that's why Paul just went straight to Philippi, because he knew exactly what Paul was, or what God was calling him to go. What we do know for sure is that Philippi had a rich history both a Greek history, and in Paul's day, it was a Roman colony, an important Roman city, a a proud Roman city. Verse 13. And on the Sabbath day, this is when the Jews would come together to worship. On the Sabbath day, we, meaning Paul, Luke, Timothy, and Silas, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we suppose there was a, a place of worship, a place of prayer. Now, Paul was a Uh, had a uh, particular evangelistic strategy as you read through the book of Acts. He would always go to the Jews first, or the Jew first, and then the Gentiles. He did this, remember, Paul was a a well-respected rabbi at this time, a student of the greatest rabbi of his time. He would have easily got a hearing at any synagogue on the Sabbath. It was a great place for him to proclaim the gospel, but but here's the problem in, in Philippi. The Jewish population of this proud Roman and Greek city was, was extremely small. We know this because for a, a synagogue to be placed in a city, there had to be at least 10 Jewish men. Typically, if there wasn't enough men to start a synagogue, a place of prayer was established where faithful Jews could meet to pray and read scripture, meaning there was less than 10 Jewish men in the city. In Philippi. The place of prayer was outside the gate next to the riverside. Look again at verse 13. It says this On the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. We sat down and spoke to the woman who had come together. Now, once again, this shows really the small size of the Jewish population. There was only women praying reading scripture here, meaning there was no man or rabbi or even teacher or someone to lead this group. Therefore, to have a rabbi like Paul come and be willing to teach these women, which, just so you know, as a side note, was was somewhat unheard of for a rabbi to sit down with women to teach them because they just thought that was a waste of time. For, for everyone that sees Paul as a chauvinist because of the, the scriptures that we have, Paul sat down with these women and taught them because he saw the value in this group. Verse 14. One who had heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, 
a seller of purple good, goods who was a worshiper of God. Now, purple goods were, were very rare and very costly. Really, only royalty and the very wealthy would wear purple. It was a dye that was hard to come by, meaning Lydia was probably someone that was well-to-do or somewhat wealthy to, to be in this business. And not only that, it says that she was a worshiper of God. Now, that's a specific title. A, a worshiper of God was a Gentile worshiper of the Jewish God. Someone that was a Gentile, not a Jew, but, but recognized that there was one God, the, the God of the Old Testament, the Jewish God. Now listen to this. This is the second part of verse 14. It says this, The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. In other words, as Paul was proclaiming the gospel, the Lord, God, opened her heart. Luke is making this very clear. Remember, Luke is the author of Acts, and he was a witness of this. He's making it very clear that all the glory of Lydia's salvation goes to God. Not only did God send Paul miraculously to Lydia, to Philippi, through a vision, but God also sent Paul straight to Lydia, and he, the Lord, opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. If God didn't first open Lydia's heart, the gospel message would have fallen on deaf ears. But instead, God opened her eyes to see, opened her ears to hear the Lord, opened her heart to receive the gospel message. Again, all the glory goes to God. And Luke wants to make sure that we understand this. In fact, in the entire book of, uh, of Acts, he points this out earlier in Acts thirteen forty-eight. It says this, and when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed, their hearts were opened, and they believed. Salvation is a miracle. It's a miracle. It's an intervention on God's part in our lives. Therefore, he gets all the glory. And he will not share that glory with anyone else. In fact, in, in Acts 16, Paul just shared a message. He shared news. It was God who opened Lydia's heart to hear it. Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians 3, 6 through 7. I, this is Paul, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything but only God who gives the growth. Yeah, I was just outside yesterday, hanging out in my yard, and I was just kind of amazed, just looking around at all the miracles that are around us that just don't make sense to me. Maybe they make sense to some of you guys, but I, I lifted up my, my um, trash can the other day, and there was like five frogs underneath it. And I was thinking, I, we live in a desert. Like, there's no pond or lake anywhere near us. Where did a tadpole become a frog and find the only moisture anywhere underneath this trash can? I'm sure one of you scientists could share how that happens to me, but, but think about this, because this is more amazing. You plant a seed that is tiny in the ground, in dirt, and all you do is pour water on it, and it will become a massive plant. It's not the planning or the watering that's miraculous about that. 
It's the growth. And that's Paul's point. It's the life. That's the miraculous part. In salvation, it's a dead soul coming to life, a heart of stone becoming a heart of flesh. And God gets all the glory for that. He gets all the glory for Lydia's salvation. And really, it was a miraculous birth of the Philippian church. Look at verse 15. It says this, And after she was baptized, and her household as well, Soon after Lydia was saved and baptized her, her whole household believed and was saved and also was baptized. This was the start of the Philippian church, Lydia and her household, baptized by Paul and his companions. Look at verse 15. And after she was baptized and her whole household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. And immediately we see fruit of the salvation, hospitality, and love as she invites these men to stay with her in her household. Just an amazing story, miraculous story of salvation to, to this lady in her household. This is the, the first comfort we see in Philippi, the beginning of this church that we're going to be studying for the next, I don't know how long, a while. Now, in verse 16, there's a transition in the story. Uh, and I just want to say this. This is, this is the first church that's being planted on a whole new continent. You better believe the devil is going to attack when the kingdom is getting advanced in this way. And we see this in verse 16. Just a short time later, look at verse 16. It says this. As we were going to the place of prayer, a day, maybe two days later, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul had become greatly annoyed, turned, and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. Now, there's a lot here. There's a lot of questions I would love to spend time answering, but... But for the sake of time, and more for the sake of, of just staying focused on the, the planting of this church, let's just move on. Look at verse 19. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. Remember, this is a proud Roman city, and they grabbed Silas and Paul, probably because they were full Jews. Luke and Timothy were half Jews, and, and they seemed to let them go, but grabbed the, the full Jews, Paul and Silas. And look at verse 22. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them, and gave orders to beat them with rods. And they stripped them naked and beat them. And this happens so much in the book of Acts as you read through it in your daily devotions. We kind of just ignore these verses after a while. Paul just got beat again, thrown in jail again. But I want you to think about that. Stripped and beaten, and not just beaten. Look at verse 23. And, and when they had inflicted many blows upon them, 
This was a severe beating. They threw him into prison and ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them in the inner prison, the most secure part of this prison, and fastened their feet with the stocks. Now, stocks were meant to be uncomfortable. They were meant to put you in an uncomfortable position that you would be in all night, causing extreme pain, really extreme cramping in your legs all night long after being beaten. So Pilate and Silas were unjustly stripped, beaten, thrown into prison, put in painful stocks. Now listen, one of the major themes in the book of Philippians is joy in the midst of suffering. Joy in the midst of suffering. In fact, joy and suffering are just found everywhere in the book of Philippians. And that's exactly how the Philippian church was founded. Joy in the midst of suffering. Listen to verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God in prison, in stocks. Joy in the midst of suffering. That's just amazing. Paul, Paul didn't just preach truth. He didn't just write truth. He lived it. Let me just read two verses from Philippians. Philippians 2.17. Even if, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice. He doesn't just write that. In fact, when he writes this, he's in prison again, this time in Rome. Philippians 4 4, we know this verse. Rejoice in the Lord when? Even in prison, even after being beaten, even after being put in stocks. Rejoice. Again, I say rejoice. Paul didn't just write that, he lived it. He modeled this joy. Joy in the midst of suffering. And the church in Philippi was first hand witness of this. In fact, he was praying and singing hymns to God. You know what's interesting? Again, I've spent a lot of time just kind of studying Philippians and reading through it. There's actually a hymn in the middle of the book. Meaning, Paul wrote this letter. It's an epistle. It's a letter to the church at Philippi when he was in prison in Rome years later. And in this letter, he stops and starts to write out a hymn in the letter. It just makes me wonder if this hymn was the hymn he was singing in jail. Did he put this hymn in this epistle to, to this church because he knew they would recognize it as the song he sang in jail? I don't know. But the hymn is familiar to us. Let me just read it. It's found in Philippians 2, verse 4. It says this, Let, let each of you uh, look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others, having this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Have this mind, which is Christ's mind, 
who, here's the hymn, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, I could just imagine Paul singing this in jail. (laughs) Singing this as he's suffering like his Savior did. Singing Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. But the hymn doesn't stop there. It says this, Therefore God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that's above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Maybe this is the song Paul and Silas were singing that brought hope and joy while in jail. Verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Now, Luke adds that little phrase in there. My guess is that many of them were saved. Again, the start of this church, prisoners. Verse 26, and suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundation of the prison was shaken. And immediately all the doors were open and everyone's bounds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the, peop- the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. Now, this doesn't make sense to us, but, but in the Roman Empire, if a prisoner escaped, the guard that was on duty would have been killed. It was instant death penalty for, for letting one prisoner escape. So you can imagine the anxiety of this man when he thought all the prisoners escaped. There, because of the shame and the assurance of death, the jailer drew, drew his sword and was about to kill himself. But, verse 28, but Paul cried with a loud voice, do not harm yourself for we are all here. Meaning Paul, Silas, and not just them, but all the prisoners were still there. Verse 29, and the jailer called for the lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell before, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Now at this point, I'm guessing the jailer had heard Paul and Silas sharing the gospel over and over and over and over again to all the prisoners, but, but he probably, they probably have shared the gospel with him specifically already. He just wasn't ready to hear it. But he is now. <laughs> just like Lydia, God opened his heart. And he asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said very simply, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house, meaning children, wife, maybe relatives that were living with him. They all heard the gospel, and they all believed. Verse 33. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Verse 34, 
Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. Just another amazing story. His entire household is saved, him and his entire household. Now, let me make one observation for all the people that, that say this household most likely had babies in it or children that couldn't understand the gospel uh, but were baptist, or baptized. A lot of people use this argument to support baby baptism. But, but look at the end of verse 34. It says this, and he rejoiced along with what? His entire household that he had believed in God, meaning the entire household understood what it meant to believe in God. That's why they rejoiced. The entire household rejoiced. In fact, I don't even think this is the best translation. I think the NASB translates this better with the context. Verse 34, this is the NASB. It says this, And he brought them into his house and set food before them and rejoiced greatly, having believed in God with his whole household. In other words, the whole household believed, just like Lydia's whole household believed and then was baptized, the jailer's whole household believed and then they were baptized. And between these two families, and also I'm guessing many prisoners and the other women at the riverbank maybe, this was the start of the Philippian church. The people themselves, not all that notable, a wealthy business lady, a jailer, some prisoners. But the way they were saved, miraculous. Miraculous. Again, this is a special church. First church in Europe. For most of us, that's our heritage. And as we will see in Paul's letter written many years later, once again in prison, this time in prison in Rome, a church that was just so very dear to Paul's heart. Paul loved this church. Let me just end today by going to one other place. If you would, turn to 2 Corinthians 8, verse 1. I want to end here because I just want you to see the effects of the gospel in Macedonia and in Philippi. This is some time later. It's, it's an interesting passage because Paul is bragging about a church to another church. He's talking to this church saying, hey, you got to hear about this church. 2 Corinthians 8 verse 1 says this, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God. Let me stop there. He's bragging about one church to another church, but who gets all the credit? The grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. This includes the Philippi church, church in uh, Philippi. Verse 2, for in a severe test of affliction, listen to this, their abundance of joy. Now, I don't know exactly what was going on to to have Paul say a severe test of affliction, but if, if Paul says a severe test of affliction, I'm guessing it was a severe test of affliction. <laughs> it produced abundance of joy. Who does that sound like? Paul. He, they're following his example. And their extreme poverty, maybe the jailer lost his job, Lydia lost all her business, and extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. I mean, it doesn't even make sense. 
For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord. I didn't even force them to do that. It's their own accord, their own heart. Begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. This is the character of this church. And I pray as we walk through the book of Philippians, this would be the character of our church, that we give ourselves first to the Lord, then others. Dear Lord, our God, our Father, Lord, I thank you for this story. Lord, I thank you just time and time again in my heart for how you written uh, your word for us, Lord. These historical narratives, these stories that are so engaging, real-life stories, Lord, real people whose hearts were changed miraculously, Lord. I pray, God, that, that we as a church see this and see the effects of the gospel in, in, uh, in Philippi and in Macedonia and in, in, in Greece and Europe and Rome and that we don't underestimate the power of the gospel, that we take the gospel message out of these four walls boldly knowing that it is the power to save. We are called just to share a message you are the one that does the miraculous worth of growth and new life. God, help us to, to be bold with the gospel. In your son's name, amen.